Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Well, welcome to the Al Franken Podcast. This week, we're playing a conversation that I had with Dana Carvey when I first started recording these. And originally, it was not my intention to interview my comedian friends, but George H.W. Bush had just died, and Dana, of course... Uh, did HW on SNL, and I wrote or co-wrote a lot of those, especially with Jim Downey, a legendary SNL writer. But in 1988, when Reagan's second term was coming to an end, we were getting a little nervous because Dana just did not have a take on on Bush, and Reagan was kind of easy to get a, a get a fix on and to get laughs. Now. Some of you may remember Franken and Davis. That was me and my comedy partner. We met in high school, and we were there at the beginning of SNL uh, back in 1975. We stayed until 1980 and then came back in 85. When Lauren came back, we were Lauren again. In those five years, uh, we did a lot of college gigs. And we used to do Reagan in our act, and I would do the sort of, you know, the doddering Reagan and this guy back in Minneapolis had, had made this thing for us where I could talk on the phone as Reagan backstage and Tom could be uh, on stage and be very excited about this call. It was coming in from the president, especially at colleges. A lot of college kids needed to know a lot about the presidency. And Reagan was calling in. The phone would ring. Uh, Tom would answer it. And I'd say into the phone, the um, president of the United States will be uh, right on on the phone, and Tom would go, "Oh wow, this is this is so exciting!" And then a slide would go up on uh, the screens on either side of the stage of Reagan at his desk on the phone with the phone up to his left ear, and I'd go, "Hello," and Tom would go, "Hello, Mr. President." Hello. You go, Mr. President, Tom, hello, hello. Uh, Mr. President, hello, hello, hello. Mr. President, are you having trouble uh, hearing me? Oh, Tom, Tom, yes, I, oh, I must have uh, the phone up to my bad ear. He said, oh, that's right, Mr. President. Uh, you, I, I heard that you uh, damaged one of your ears uh, while uh, on a movie set. And uh, yeah, well, here let me let me switch it, and then then we'd switch it the slides, and it would just be the same slide with his <laughs> uh, the phone now on his right ear, and that'd get a laugh. That'd get a good laugh. And then uh, he'd say, "Well, the gun went off by my ear," and it was like, "Was that during one of your many westerns that you you, you shot, sir?" No, it was during the um, filming of Newt Rockney. All American. It was, it was the halftime gun. Well, Mr. President, uh, I think the students have some questions for you. Well, well, that's good, Tom, because uh, you know a lot of college students don't know that much about the presidency. For example, uh, many think that William Howard Taft was uh, the fattest president. Huh. Well, I, I thought he was the fattest president. No, no, he he was not. Well, uh, who was the fattest president, sir? I don't know. And so that then Tom would start 
taking questions. And so, so Reagan, that was the doddering Reagan. Phil Hartman, when we came back in 85, again, Lorne again writers started doing Reagan kind of in that fashion. But if you kind of compare Reagan uh, to Trump, Reagan uh, was an actor, and of course he's uh, going to have experience reading lines, reading and speaking at the same time, which is something that Trump is just not good at. And I watched the 4th of July uh, speech, and he just is not good at reading and talking at the same time. And he he blamed uh, the Washington airport thing on the prompter. But if you know your speech, you know where you are, and you're in the 18th century. I'm sorry. The least he could do is go over the speech. When I would used to do an important speech, I'd go over it. I'd go over it two, three, four, five. I'd go over it until I had it. I don't, I've never seen, maybe a State of the Union. Maybe a State of the Union, they've made him go over it. But this was, um, well, let's play some of this. The Continental Army suffered a bitter winter of Valley Forge, found glory across the waters of the Delaware, and seized victory from Cornwallis of Yorktown. Our army manned the airport. It ran the ramparts. It took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. It can't be just pure talent lack. I just have to think on top of everything else, this is the laziest president we've ever had. Look, he's honoring our our brave soldiers, sailors, and Marines, and, and Coast Guardsmen and women. And all these pilots and crews are preparing for the flyover. So many people have prepared for this event. There's the national park workers. There's the the park police, the D.C. police. There's millions of people watching on TV. Just read through the friggin' speech a few times. And, And he's celebrating these armed forces. He's a guy who got out of Vietnam by having his doctor write a bullshit note saying that Donald had bone spurs. I mean, the whole speech was dedicated to our fighting men and women and their unbelievable sacrifice of blood and of life. And it was just all the more tacky that he could not have taken the slightest bit of effort to learn this speech. So now back to Dana and and George H.W. Bush. Ronald Reagan was leaving. Phil Hartman uh, had a clear handle for him. He did him great. But at that point, looking at George H.W. Bush, Dana had nothing. And if you listen to his first few attempts, Dana just did not have that handle. And we were going, oh, boy, Bush is just kind of boring. And then Dana found him with doing that thing over there. You know, in that whole area over there. And, you know, Nagada, Nagada, wouldn't be prudent. So uh, we we just started to rely on Dana's Bush because he could get laughs at will. And if anything happened that week that we could open with, we, we would do it. And uh, we just rode Dana uh, for the rest of Bush's term. And then, uh, and of course, during the campaign, Dana got the gift of Ross Perot. Uh, so we had this crazy 92 season where the show just climbed on Dana's back, on, on, on Bush and, and Perot and on Phil Hartman's Clinton, but mainly uh, Bush. Now, our depiction of H.W. Bush was never vicious and and, and Bush was gracious enough that after he lost, he invited Dana to the White House. This is after he lost. He'd been defeated, and he invites the guy who had ridiculed him for four years on TV, invites the guy to the White House. Now, can you imagine Donald Trump inviting Alec Baldwin to the White House if Trump you know, loses next fall? 
Of course, Alec and SNL have been pretty unrelenting on Trump, and how could you not be? But, but Bush not only invited Dana to the White House after he lost, they became friends. They became friends. And as you'll hear, uh, the interview with Dana is very much about how we developed the political satire on SNL during what I think was a pretty good period of, of political satire on the show. So our idea of political satire on the show was to do well-observed political satire. Now, this was before Trump, obviously. There is no way to do well-observed satire on Donald Trump and not be as vicious as possible. Or, for that matter, for McConnell and, and the rest of the Republicans who are just being so craven now. Lindsey Graham, for example. Remember that weird tirade at the, uh, at the end of the Kavanaugh hearings? To my Republican colleagues, if you vote no, you're legitimizing the most despicable thing I have seen in my time in politics. You want this seat? I hope you never get it. I hope you're on the Supreme Court. That's exactly where you should be. And I hope that the American people will see through this charade. Now, the only proper response to that was this. That move was from a piece uh, that I co-wrote entitled The Sarcastic Clapping Family of Southampton. Here's an excerpt, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, and that week's host, Kevin Bacon. Now that we're all here, I'd just like to say one thing. I know that some of you would like to challenge Father's will. After all, Meg and I did do rather well. And maybe Blake and Cosima think that's unfair. Of course, I certainly respect your right to do whatever you feel you have to do. But, for God's sakes, before we start getting lawyers in here and fighting each other like greedy rats, let's remember one thing. We're a family, damn it. A family! <laughs> Because there's a lot more at stake here than mere dollars and cents. There's the memory of a man we all love. The man we called Father. Quite a performance, Jeffrey. Oh, quite a performance indeed. Considering the fact that you hate it, Father. No, 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 don't act so shocked, Jeffrey. We all know that you were just waiting for Father to die so you could get your filthy hands on all his money! <laughs> nice speech, Cosima. Very nice. Considering you hadn't seen Father in almost two years, Okay, now speaking of McConnell, my biggest hope for the 2020 election is that we not only take the White House and keep the House, but that we get 250 in the Senate. That's our goal, and it's going to be hard. But if we do, McConnell and the Republicans have been playing so dirty over the last five years. Here's what I suggest Democrats do if we get the White House and the 50 Democrats in the Senate. Okay. There is no age requirement on Supreme Court justices. The framers just did not put one in. So, in 2021, when, say, Justice Ginsburg decides to retire, say, the new president appoints a 12-year-old. That's right. Say, Ginsburg's oldest great-granddaughter. Reliable liberal, continues to live at home till she goes to college. Now, McConnell, when the president names the 12-year-old as the nominee, McConnell will go, you can't do that. You can't. And we'll say, oh, yes, we can. And then say Breyer decides to retire, replace him with a three-year-old, say Merrick Garland's youngest granddaughter. 
Now, if you think of it, after serving on the court, I don't know what, it would be like 80, 90 years. And, you know, think of the medical advances by then. I mean, so 90 years after serving <laughs> on the court from 90, she will be the most seasoned justice in the history of the court, the three-year-old. It's time we play hardball. That's, that's all I'm saying. Play hardball. Okay, hang on for my discussion with Dana Carvey, who I think, by the way, does the best Trump I have ever heard. You know, normally I I do issues, political issues, but George H.W. Bush, his memorial was Mm -hmm. uh, a few days ago. And uh, John Meacham, uh, the presidential historian, uh, mentioned Dana. And yes. basically, now, Dana, he said to the crowd that uh, you have said that doing an impression of George H.W. Bush was John Wayne doing Mr. Rogers. But I read that you said it was Mr. Rogers trying to do John Wayne. <laughs> Did he have it wrong? Uh, yeah, dead wrong. No, I don't. I I think what I normally do with these things, is, is, and I didn't even do it right in the editorial. You, st- I think I would start with John Wayne and then move toward Mr. Rogers. So, well, let's go over the ridge, uh-huh. And, you know, and then, and then move toward Mr. Rogers. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. You know, so there's something there. But I don't know if it was John Wayne doing Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers doing John Wayne. But. Okay, I like John Meacham. Meacham is supposed to be a presidential historian, and he's supposed to get things right. Well, he interviewed me for the book, and I probably led him astray intentionally, never thinking that he would use it in a public forum. No, I have no idea, but it, it's definitely John Wayne and Mr. Rogers. Yes. Uh, you wrote a beautiful uh, piece in the New York Times about George H.W. Bush and, and, uh, and, and your relationship. What was great about it was that you that he invited you down to the White House after he lost, right? Yes. And you asked where you were going to stay? I did. I was very nervous talking to him, yeah. And I did say, where, well, where would I stay? And there was that long pause. So, you know, suddenly— Oh, there was a long pause. So he wasn't intending— to say in the Lincoln bedroom. We we never talked about whether that was his intention or not, but it definitely I I said that where would I stay? Pause. <laughs> well, you can stay right here in the White House with Barr and I. And I didn't know if he thought I was negotiating, I wasn't, but anyway, it was a funny moment. Where would I stay? And, yeah. and let me ask you about Barr. Yeah. Because I think there's a difference between Barr and HW in temperament or there was. Yes. And you told me that Barr was a little skeptical of you. I think she was protective of her husband. And I don't, you know, they assumed maybe that we were uh, Democrats or something. I don't know. So I, I felt maybe she was it was a... because you did a fundraiser for uh, the DNC uh, in 1991 or 90 right. at the Kennedy Center. Yes, at which Lorna, Lorna invited me to do that. and then, <laughs> But that was the first time I got that sense of George Bush Sr., how different he was, because we went over the White House the next day. That was the very first time I met him. I didn't have it in the op-ed, but it was only very brief. But I remember him saying, hope you guys had a good, a good event last night. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. Well, and at that point, he was at like 93% approval rating because the, the Gulf War just ended. Yes, but at the dinner that we had in the White House, we had a lot of meals and dinners. We walked around. It was all kinds of stuff. It was too short of a to do the whole story. Barbara at one point would start referring to the media, and she goes, I just don't like it when they say untrue things about my friend down there and pointed at her husband. And then President Bush said, well, we said no politics. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of it, you know. Okay, but he was, you know, he was the Bush who didn't invade Iraq. Well, that was the mandate. That was the coalition. And I guess Colin Powell, I don't know if he said it to both presidents, if you, you know, if you break it, it's yours, you know. Right. And uh, he was right about that. So in your article, you write about Lovitz. And the article Mm -hmm. starts with Lovitz calling you and saying, 
you won. Yes, and I talked to John right before I came here, and yeah, that's pretty much how the conversation went, <laughs> within reason. Well, yeah. I was with John on election night. So you had a different experience. <laughs> well, no, I had actually kind of the same experience. Basically, yeah. what happened was I had campaigned for Dukakis, and mm-hmm. they invited me and John up, John to do Dukakis, and me right. to be the MC of his victory party on election night. Mm. So, which I started with either we're going to win, it's going to be really, we're just going to win very, very tight, a very close yeah. race, yeah. or we'll win with a landslide. <laughs> that was my first joke, because by the time yeah. it started, it wasn't looking good. Didn't look good. They had flown us up in this really small private jet or something, and then mm-hmm. I, we had to go back, and I had to write. It was a Tuesday night, obviously, and I'm I'm with John. Uh, in this plane, and looking, I'm looking down at the lights. It was a beautiful, clear night, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about the majesty of democracy. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a little sad, but mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, like, you know, what a great country we are. I'm looking down, and and then mm-hmm. John says, "Fuck, Bush is president," and I went like. Well, yeah, but, you know, it, it, that's the way the system works. And he said, fucking Dana gets to do the president. <laughs> I don't—did he really say it like that? He did that. I, that's funny. I don't—yeah. He did it. it was, he did it. Maybe he did it with a little more humor in it, but right. not much. And and he, <laughs> he really had been counting on doing the cold openings, which you ended up doing— I, I I went through a file of cold openings, and you mm-hmm. just we we just depended on you to open the show. We did a lot, a lot of cold openings. Yeah, and sometimes we didn't start until Friday night or Saturday morning. Well, which is okay because <laughs> yeah. Uh, the yeah, cold opening should be the one thing about doing a live show is that you can respond to yeah. And it, it was a guy in a chair essentially facing forward with a lockdown shot. Made it super easy. Okay. And, and they killed. But I called Lorne on, on Saturday saying, like, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do for, for Bush? And he was thinking of the Bush to caucus debate. Mm-hmm. And I knew why he was doing it because it got the biggest laugh of the year, I think. Yeah, it was a classic, that yeah. one. Yeah. And, but you didn't have Bush. No. <laughs> Not at all. No, and and uh, so I said, well, I'm you know, D- uh, Dana doesn't really have Bush there, and also it's just making fun of Bush. I mean, really, it was not it wasn't Bush at at his best. We're gonna play that, and this is you before you got it. Okay, it's not bad. And and let me explain where this is. This is um, Diane Sawyer played by Jan Hooks wonderfully is the moderator and you've been asked a question and mm-hmm. uh you don't have much of an answer and right at a certain point you end your answer and then uh, i she says this you still have a minute 20 mr vice president well sure more has to be done but the program is in place make no mistake we are doing the job so let's just stay the course and keep on track stay the course <laughs> You still have uh, 50 seconds left, Mr. President. Well, let me just sum up. On track, stay the course, a thousand points of light, stay the course. Mm -hmm. Governor Dukakis, rebuttal. I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Okay, so yeah, naturally, Warren goes biggest laugh of the season, probably that season. Yeah, yeah, and so that's what we're going to put on. And I just say, you know, remember when Bush came on the show and uh, he was on tape, but he was on the show, which which uh, showed how what a great, unbelievably great sport he was. Yes, and this is uh, you came back to host. At the, mm-hmm. what, in October of 93 or something? Uh, something like that, or later in the year, whatever. Yeah, and around so, that time. So we got, yeah. and they played this, like, on CNN and mm-hmm. all over the place, but I'm going to play it, too. Sure. And so let's, let's, let's play that. Dana, George Bush here. I'm watching you do your impression of me, and i got to say, it's nothing like me. There's no resemblance. It's bad. 
It's bad. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. President. I think it's a fair impression. <laughs> Don't see it. You know? It's totally exaggerated. Not me, those, those crazy hand gestures. The pointing thing, I don't do them. And also, nah, ga, da, never said it. In all my years of government service, I never once said, nah, ga, da. Let's talk about the impression, because I think this will be interesting to the, to the folks out there. So it took you a few cold openings after he's president, Mm-hmm. to get there, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. To find some rhythms and hooks. I was I was kind of monotone, and the writing was actually pretty funny, though, like I say in the op-ed, you know, stay well, the Downey, course. Well, Downey yeah. and I would do those cold openings. Jim mm-hmm. Downey, the greatest political satirist uh, in the history of the show, he stayed on after I left. He did uh, the um, Gore... Uh, Bush debate. I, I put it in a lockbox. <laughs> yeah, lockbox, and lock it was box. also strategery. And yep. I think that that decided the election because everyone knew that Bush was kind of inarticulate and et cetera. Mm-hmm. They knew all the Bush stuff, but he had Gore sighing, and he did the lockbox, the repetitive lockbox, and a certain superciliousness, mm-hmm. and yep. that was that was five hundred votes in Florida. <laughs> You know what? Blame it's, Jim Downey for it's terrifying to think that Saturday Night Live has that kind of power, but yeah, mm. I think it's definitely influential. Yeah, no, it, evidently the um, Gore campaign showed him the the sketch and said you can't do this <laughs> in the next yeah. debate. No, it. I I really do believe that that Jim changed the course of history <laughs> with that. Yes, and yes, he knows it too. But I think, <laughs> yeah, I so think he's... that you're right. I mean, you, things will not get a laugh it, it, unless there's some type of truth underneath it, you know. So it's holding up a mirror, like this is what they're laughing their ass off at. Mr. Yeah, and, and but on this, like strategery, which Bush had mm-hmm. never said, by the yes. way. And he... uh, so that was Jim Downey. And, mm-hmm. and the Bush people loved it. Yeah. They put on one door office of strategery and the Eisenhower office building, the, the building across right next to the White House. It was interesting because we did something. We did an election special that year, like the night before the election or something. Mm-hmm. And we and both we had both Bush and Gore do something, you know, and yes, Bush, Bush's team and Bush wanted his stuff, his malapropism. He, he wanted to be bigger. Mm-hmm. He knew what the caricature of him was, and he wanted to do it. And yes. and the Gore team was uh, much more controlled, and you know Gore was was looser, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that. I was there that day, by the way. I met W and Al Gore that day. I think I was guest hosting or some somehow I was doing a guest spot or something. But well, I remember you were probably doing him. wraparounds for the special. We would do these political specials every oh, okay. like in t- four years, right before yeah. the election. Yeah. So it made Bush W. kind of likable, I guess. He's very yeah. likable, and I hate mm-hmm. saying that because he was, he was a terrible president. I mean, he inherited a, a balanced budget <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wow, was... left us in huge debt and also, you know, with, with the worst economy since the Great Depression. So there's that. I don't know how much Cheney and Rumsfeld and those guys had to do with it versus how much Bush had to do with it. But Bush's uh, Saddam had tried to kill uh, his father. So there's that. They did not have weapons of mass destruction. They had nothing to do with 9-11. Everyone knows this, who's listening to this. And it, it, it was a tragedy. Well, Bill Clinton obviously set up regime change but you know i've been maybe during the lewinsky thing and then a lot of the dems did jump in on that which always mystified me you know supported the uh invasion oh yeah most of most of them did yeah so that's what really put it over the top right but you liked him right well i only met him very briefly and he was he was uh just charming you know but but so was al gore remember we we did that event with al gore in marin county i think and he he's a he's a much a very loose likable guy. I mean a lot of politicians I just think I think Al was Mr. Gore was overhandled a little bit too, you know. There is that. It's a very fine line between 
overhandling your your uh, candidate. You know, it's interesting when like uh, a Beto uh, O'Rourke this this year had no consultants, <laughs> and he was great. And so sometimes maybe that's the way to go, but don't. Right, we'll see. He had no pressure. He's coming from behind. Hopefully, he won't uh, change things up. But I, I think he's the guy they're going to put up. If I had to guess right now, you know, this is the thing about you uh, mm-hmm. that I, I promise, by the way, to blow a lot of smoke up your ass if you do this. I know. I was waiting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm fine. I, I, the thing about here is the ass blowing. Begins now. Here it begins, coming in. So you know politics. You know politics, and and uh, you're not a partisan though, and no. you're not. I I think you're probably progressive, but you're not a a uh, a real partisan. And we felt on the show, Jim Downey, mm-hmm. who I talked about, is a conservative. He's brilliant, and mm-hmm. he's a thoughtful conservative. I I have not talked to him about Trump, but I can't believe he. I mean, I don't think Trump is conservative. Trump, Trump's an anomaly. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, re- I like to read the opposite. I always tell people, read the opposite. So I read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every morning with my cup of coffee. Because when I see consensus, um, I find it very interesting. You know, like say if a Wall Street Journal does a more dire thing about climate change, it gets my attention more. Or if the uh, New York Times says something critical of the Obama administration, it gets my attention. So I would say read the opposite. <laughs> do, do, do you read the op-ed? I, I do. I mean, I don't read every single one, but, you know, I find them very interesting. That's sort of, you know, the incendiary voices, the media voices get all the attention, but at least there's some thoughtful, smartly written editorials, whether you agree or disagree, in the Wall Street Journal. It's not scorched or as quite as over the top as, like, the evening shows, you know. Yeah, well, we I actually... <laughs> Well, not as Fox, but it's pretty close. I, I got to say, the Wall Street Journal editorial. You, you and I can disagree on that, but well, they well, well just for example, they they take a lot of shots at Trump, and they think he's completely has no idea what trade is or what he's doing. So that they well, agree it's the with Wall the Wall Street Journal. They yes. love trade. What I was getting at was, you knew exactly what every political thing we had you do was. In fact, you wrote some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, a very, very much a plus because we're working with a, a fully operating vessel, you, you know, mm-hmm. and so you knew every nuance of, of everything we were, were doing and we're mm-hmm. adding to it. I'm trying to uh, think of where that made. Oh, I know. Do you remember when we were going to go on a two-week break, and you said, I'm thinking of doing Songus. Can you work on that? Yes. And I said, um, oh, sure. I'll, I'll work on it. We were going on a two-week break. And so I started playing with Songus, and I realized like, like that he was snagglepuss with a um, Massachusetts accent. <laughs> so it, he was yeah. uh, like a dollar... I'm not going to spend your dollars. I'm, uh, you know, not Santa Claus. <laughs> and then he'd always I, cough. It was funny. That was an example of an impression that if, if any viewer had never seen Songus, it was a really, really funny character. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, we're going to play this. But here's yeah. the thing. So I come back. So I go to the Kennedy School to give a thing about, you know, political comedy or something. Mm-hmm. I trot out the songus I've figured out. Yeah. And uh, it gets... Yeah, we're going to fix the economy. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> and they go... Not, you know, yeah. I'm going like, oh, man, fuck. Dana wants to do songus, but I've got it. <laughs> so I come back, <laughs> and I, I, I say, you know, Dana, um, I know you asked me to think, think about songus and... Uh, I kind of I got it in a way that I think is really uh, I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it. And you went, I'll do brown. I'll do, do you remember Jerry that? Brown. Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And then you immediately immediately started doing brown and it wasn't 100% there. Now you're a Californian, so you knew him. Yeah. But you actually got his way of thinking 
mm-hmm. about politics and about you just got him. And I, I got to play this. This was so we did a Star Trek convention. You remember that? This one, you came out and it was just instant, instant, huge laughs. I mean, just yeah. And and yeah. this is not under the heading of, of blowing smoke up your ass in a way because I get more right. laughs than this. But right, I was blowing smoke up your ass while you were trying to blow smoke up my ass. There was smoke and there were asses. No one knows where the smoke was going. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. But I think this Brown is brilliant, and this is. All three candidates at that time, it was Brown and Sangas and Clinton, uh, come talk to a Star Trek convention. We're trying to limit the use of these, so we're just going to do Brown and and Sangas. Former California Governor Jerry Brown spoke to the 17th annual Star Trek convention at the O'Hare Marriott Hotel. Our C-SPAN camera, the only camera we have, was there, as was our microphone. Thank you, Trekkers. Thank you very much. Now, I want to say that 23 years ago this fall, Star Trek was canceled. And, and I think it's a shame and a travesty that we don't have a single primetime science fiction show on our network schedule today. And in the 60s, if you look at what we did out there in California, we had Outer Limits, we, we, we had the Twilight Zone, Star Trek, as well as Lost in Space, and now all we've got is Star Trek The Next Generation, and, and that's in syndication. Now, some people say there's not enough audience for science fiction on television, but if you go back and look at it, and look at when Star Trek was canceled, it had a 21% share of the audience. Now, today, that's a hit. That's a notch landing or a, or a, 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 a tequila and Benetti. Now... Um, see, now, we have this giant, bloated Nielsen system in place, and it just perpetuates itself. Now, but under my plan, under my plan, what we have is a mandatory 13% flat audience share, so shows like Doctor Who or Alien Nation can stay on and have a chance to develop. And you won't have bankrupt programming, you know, like, like Madlock with Andy Griffith, and I, I'm sorry, but he, he hasn't had a new idea in 20 years, and I'll say it to Andy Griffith's face, I mean, he may be an honorable man, but what he's doing is just business as usual. Some of those uh, last, in case you're listening to that and going like, hmm, what, I don't, there were cutaways to the Trekkies. Right, yeah. So there was Farley yeah. and uh, yeah. Spade and just the whole yeah. group I, of them being, being Trekkies. So, and by the way, that voice, the C-SPAN announcer voice is Downey. Of course. Okay, so yeah. now we're going to uh, go to Sangus, I guess, right? Later that day, former Massachusetts Senator Paul Sangus addressed the same gathering. Okay. Okay, now, now earlier... Yeah. Jerry Brown talked yeah, about Star Trek, okay? Yeah, and, and he put himself forward <laughs> as, you know, the Star Trek candidate, okay? <laughs> okay, but I was, you know, the first candidate to uh, carry around the Star Trek <laughs> lunchbox, okay? Okay, now when Jerry Brown talks about Okay, we can. That's okay, enough of that. That's enough of that. It, you get the idea. <laughs> well, yeah, a, you know, I mean. Yeah. Well, it was a funny voice. You know. It was, and, and of an course attitude. now it's been how many years is it? It's that's nineteen ninety two. Yeah, twenty six. So mm-hmm. twenty six years ago. So there's a lot of people going, huh? Yeah. Right. But he was the front runner at that time. He won Iowa, right? Uh, or, or I think he won New Hampshire. New Hampshire because okay. Clinton was second and called himself the comeback kid because mm-hmm. it was after Jennifer Flowers and and yeah. the draft stuff. So he was viable, I think, the week we did that. At least. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, no, he so that was gave it viable, energy. and I don't know how viable Brown was, but uh, he had run against Carter, so he yeah. ran in seventy six. Yes. You know what? Brown has done a brilliant job in California, hasn't he? Well, yeah, I I think, and Brown had said it himself, if Brown was 72 somehow right now, he he might be the front runner for the Democratic nomination, you know? California has done amazingly well under him. Uh, they balanced the budget, uh, which, you know, what he inherited from Schwarzenegger was nothing like that. 
And he's just been a great governor, and California's been doing incredibly well, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's uh, that's an example of I, I like someone like him who can still kind of surprise you. Obviously, he's a Democrat, but he was a Jesuit, and he really wanted to have a rainy day fund. You know, that, that side of him was conservative, which California really needs. So we have a fairly decent one. I think it's $16 billion, you know, but that, that was part of his— uh, you know, he, he was he was um, an asymmetrical uh, character. I mean, he would he would that, that's why we made fun of him. You know, satellite satellites. And that's why the, the Trekkie convention made so much sense, sense a little bit. That yeah, he would get into it in that fashion. Yeah, yeah, and I think you probably wrote that. Maybe maybe uh, you and Jim. And it was great to have somebody who, when we were writing, you you know, Downey and I were. Um, you know, political junkies, but we were Definitely. writing yeah. with somebody who also was. Well, I think it influenced me a little bit because it was interesting for uh, the listeners that Jim was conservative. I don't know how far conservative, but I'd never met sort of an intellectual conservative before. Jim kind of surprised me because you think Harvard grad, New York, Saturday Night Live, that he would be liberal. But it was, I think it ended up being kind of nice having you on one side, Jim on the other, but both, you know, agreeing most of the time or finding consensus. So that was kind of interesting, wasn't it? It it informed the writing a little bit. Well, we know. had the same philosophy, which was the job of this show is not to have a political agenda. And mm-hmm. uh, because we had too many people on the show, you had uh, this cast, you had mm-hmm. other writers, you had production people, but especially the cast and the right. And we felt our our job was to do sort of informed, funny stuff. Downey had the thing, which is uh, reward people for knowing more, but don't punish them for knowing less. Right. So we did stuff yeah. that was, you know, uh, the, the people who don't know a lot could get, but also if you if you knew more, you you got some other stuff. And so Jim, very conservative, yeah. and he kept me honest. So we didn't do stuff that was too too progressive or too liberal or and mm-hmm. and we thought that was the proper thing. That that's what SNL was supposed to be about. And like a show like Murphy Brown, right? Yeah. That's created by one person, Diane English. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Candace Bergen, the star, is uh, a liberal. Mm -hmm. And so that that can be a liberal show. If you go down one ideological road, then there can be hypocrisy or things that you will not satirize because it's not where your your ideological road leads you. So we would lead to wherever the truth was, right? So when and then the administration kept we changing. Did, Dana. Well, we made we fun of Bill Clinton. Truth. Well, we made fun of Bill Clinton. We didn't still we didn't like, you know, kind of not make fun of Bill Clinton because he was a Democrat. I'm just it's pretty obvious. I did you want me to do my Clinton? Yeah, sure. Well, uh <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. Uh, this goes back a little bit when Hillary fainted a couple times during the um, campaign, and Bill went on actually Charlie Rose and Cave uh, tried to make everything okay, but seemed to make it worse. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, she's a fainter. I mean, she faints a lot. I mean, she's a little itty bitty thing, and uh, she she's got a low center of gravity, which I find adorable, but you get some humidity, and she just goes, uh, it becomes a whirling dervish, and it's just timber time. <laughs> 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 See, there's making fun of a liberal. Oh, yeah. Well, you you can't no. not make fun of Bill Clinton. Or, or um, Donald Trump. He talks in the strength. I haven't done that much work on it, honestly, if I was on Saturday Night Live, but he has the craziest ADD repeating words, odd, bizarre. You're going to be happy. You're asking me, excuse me. Many people interrupts himself. Excuse me. Many people are saying, you're going to be happy. You're asking me, are oh, you going to be happy? You're going to be happy. Happy like you wouldn't believe. You're going to be so happy. I just never heard anyone really talk <laughs> like that. And it's fascinating. Later on, what I decided when I was to try to do it, I decided it was Regis and Brando. And so I start with Regis Phil, but you think about it, you know, Galbert's over there, they're crazy, right? So it's that kind of New York rhythm. What can I do for you, my son? And then you lead yourself to Regis and you put them together, you got Donald Trump. So that was my That's latest great. thing. 
my latest way to do it. But I do a lot of him and Obama back and forth because I think that let's a hear that. Let's hear that. Well, the thing about yeah, Obama is paid their money for this. Obama could really sing. Right. We never had a president, maybe Nixon, darling, Clementine at the piano. <laughs> but Obama would get up there and we're going to do the things that we got to do. And then he'd go, amazing grace. And it was like really good. So I thought, well, what honestly would Trump sing? The kooky and the creepy, the kind of ookie, ookie, the kooky and the creepy, that family. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> So Bush. how did we go from the Bush to caucus debate where you're you're not there uh, to when you got him? Well, like I said in the article, I was trying to find hooks. It was just going to be monotone and just kind of I never really sat and lo- watched tape for hours, but I guess I saw him here and there. But the way I remember it, which I said in the piece was why I was with you hanging out. We were just sitting there. I don't know exactly what was going on, but I remember just at that moment, kind of waving my finger in the air and kind of doing that lazy syntax uh, Texas draw, that people doing that thing in that whole area over there. And I think you laughed, and then we both laughed, and I think that that was a keyhole. We was like, okay. And then we found not going to do it with Jim and everything and other hooks. It's that's bad. why That's you know. why you like to work with people who laugh. Uh, it's uh, laughter is oxygen. There are comedians who don't laugh that hard. You know, you're not that person. You laugh very hard and it's great. I mean, it's great when you're in the room and someone is really, really laughing. Jim Downey, be more. Jim would smile and kind of like start thinking about the next line. But yeah, you would cackle. But if you got a laugh from Jim, then you were going like, oh, I got a laugh from Jim. But OK, right. so you, yeah. you get you get the kind of the. Thing that over thing there. over there, doing that, that whole thing. area, yeah, out of breath, a yeah. little deeper, little. I was a little higher up in the early, down a little deeper, mm-hmm. doing that thing <laughs> in that area, that area over there, that area is there, whether you're there or not, doing that thing it does and the way it does it. You know that that's like a little song at the end where he would complete thoughts, doing that thing the way he does it. You know sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes it would fall down at the end. Yeah. And I remember when we got, I think early on, another hook was Nagada. Yes. And that was, I think we're, I I think I may have said something like the laziness sometimes where he does like, not going to do it. Right. (laughs) I think that's where we got to. Uh, Yeah. And then you got to Nagada. It became, yeah. And then there was nowhere else to go. Once not going to do it became Nagada. Man. You could kill with that thing. So we wrote this thing where it was a progression. And mm-hmm. it was, ba- I'll do it, not anywhere near as well as you would do it, but it was basically, you know, uh, this vial of crack was found in Lafayette Park just across the street <laughs> from the White House. <laughs> this hypodermic was found on the White House lawn. And this bag of cocaine was found right here in the Oval Office, two feet from my desk. It's getting bad. It's bad. This is, this is cocaine crack. I'll tell you something. This crack was bought right here in the White House, three feet from this desk. So, okay, so that's the progression. Right. That was the jokes, yeah. You're doing it in dress. You're getting so many laughs, and it's mainly with your hands. You're doing your hands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you do facial stuff. Mm-hmm. That between the vial of crack in Lafayette Park and the bag of Coke two feet from your desk, it's like three minutes. No way. <laughs> I know. I was milking the cow. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> well, but Jim and I had to go to Dana uh, between dress and air and say, Dana, you got to get fewer laughs. People are missing the through line. Mm -hmm. And this happened actually before. Oh, yeah. And many, many times I think that, you know, when you do the cold opening, you're you're there's a lockdown shot. You're facing the audience. The whole audience is amped up. The show is starting. 
And if you have nonverbal comedy, like waving, it's scary, and then I'm waving my arms like crazy, they're really laughing. So as a comedian, it's a horse to water. I'm going to do a little more of that and then a little more of that. And sometimes I knew that I'd gone too far. I'd kind of come off and go, okay, wait a minute. Well, here's <laughs> the smoke up your ass. Here, here's all right, the, here we go. Here, here I, it is. I'm recording, all, I'm recording this part of the show for my private time later. I have never heard of a writer telling a performer, at least at SNL, but I don't mm-hmm. think anywhere else, to not get so many laughs. I don't. I don't know of any anybody's ever told a comedian to not get so many laughs. So that's you know that's, that's pretty. That's in like in the history of comedy. That's very flattering. Uh, the one other little weird flattering thing that happened to me when I did Joe Montana and Walter Payton on Church Chat. You know, and it was all, it was pretty, you know, it was vaudevillian, right? Let's get the pig skin, Joey, and squeeze it through our, you know, that thing. But the this guy, this old Teamster sound man or something, stopped me after the show and said they, they've never peaked that high. He was the sound man. I never had a sound that loud in the studio. <laughs> so, from the laughs. Yeah, from the laughs of that sketch. He said it was the highest he'd seen the meter go. But That's I would say really massive. something. Massive Head Wound Harry probably topped it later, which I did not write, but that was... Massive yeah. Head Wound Harry was something Rob Schneider wrote. And yo, I didn't know that. Probably you and Smoggle, everybody... No, no, was, you know who put the, the thing at the end on was Tom Davis. Okay. At the rewrite. Yeah. And this is what it is. Massive Head Wound Harry was this guy comes to a party and he's got a massive head wound. <laughs> oh, open. It's an open wound. Open... Basically. Massive head wound. That, <laughs> yeah. That's that's very yeah. key that it's that, open. Yes. So it's just a party there. Everyone is getting bummed out. And yeah. Okay. So Davis in the rewrite says, "Why don't we have somebody there who's blind with a seeing eye dog, mm-hmm. and why don't we rub the wound with a uh, shrimp, with cooked yes. shrimp?" Mm-hmm. And we all go. That's brilliant. That was the hardest laugh or the loudest I'd heard it in the studio was the, that, those moments. And again, it, was, it wasn't jokes you had to listen to. It was just seeing the fight between the dog trying to rip the wig off my head. But well, it was first thing- he was, yeah, there was a, actually a flap on the wound. Yes. And he was pulling at the flap. Yes. Which was... That, I think, mainly, that was, and then what was the line at the end? Do you remember the line well, at the end? Uh, he, I, he, he must smell my dog. <laughs> but f- <laughs> for real comedy, <laughs> yeah, for real comedy aficionados, because the sketch had gone so well, I did not want the wig to come completely off and make it about that. So you'll see my hand reach up, and I'm holding the wig on on my temple. And so that, of course, kept the tug of war going, you know, and that's why it really went to such a crescendo. The dog did not need the dog. There finally you have a, yeah. a veteran performer. Yeah, thank you. Who knows that if the wig comes off, everyone begins to go like, oh, we're at a moment where a wig. Got- yeah, it's about something else. Yeah. Well, the same thing happened in The Pepper Boy with Adam Sandler, where Chris Farley had one line. We're these fanatical Italian pepper guys. You like a pepper? You want the pepper? It's a very sexual. <laughs> I think it was. Uh, but Farley had one line. Well, thank you, Pepper Boy. But on the air show, Chris went, why, thank you, Pepper Boy. And it just <laughs> Sandler turned purple. And he turns to me. And I didn't want him. To, and, I, and I said in the Italian accent, I leaned into him and said, don't a break. <laughs> and he, he, did, he, he broke a lot. He broke a lot. But in that sketch, he turned away and held it because it was the same thing. The sketch was just hitting on all cylinders. And I didn't want it to be about that, you know. So. That's you know, two. We we had an ethic in uh, that that Lauren started with was mm-hmm. don't break. But yeah, Lauren terrified us that way. You know, it's it's Carol Burnett. You don't want to break. You know what I mean? Oh, good, Lauren. Yes, <laughs> my Lauren impression. Yeah, I love your Lauren impression. I can't. Um, I, of all, I've worked there fifteen years. I can't do a Lauren impression. Let me hear your Lauren impression. Well, I'll tell you the, a, a quick little story because he knew that I did it incessantly uh, but 
I never really did it for him. He asked me once on an airplane, and I and again I kind of I that's not very good. But then maybe three years ago, I was in an Italian restaurant with Lorne and Rob Lowe. Long story. And he goes, "How did you do it?" And I said, "Lorne, really, it the beginning was you on a Wednesday night at the bulletin board. You're in there, Al's in there. We're everyone's trying to find the show. Pick, and it's frustrating, like." This is was after read-through. We've had yeah. a long read-through. The read-through wasn't the that great, and cards are going on indicating the sketches in the show and then coming off, and it was frustrating. And Lauren, before he would go use the restroom behind him, would say, this was the first hook, I, how I got Lauren. Um, I still have no fucking first act. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and then he would go to the bathroom. So I did that for Lauren, and he was fine. He was flattered. You know, it wasn't... But it's a fantastic, a fantastic rhythm. I'll, you know, you'll, you'll enjoy the podcasting. It's that thing of like a flow of conversation. You know, it's a fun. It's an exaggeration, but I love do, do his no, 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 no. Anytime Lauren would do a thesis and you would ask a question, he would do this backpedaling motorboat sound. You know, it's that thing of like you find you'll have new friends. Well, when you still be friends, we will. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. It's that thing of like, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I, I wrote in one sketch where, you know, where I put Lauren in the sketch, and I wrote no, 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 comma, no, comma, no, comma, no, comma. Oh, went, funny. No, no, <laughs> no, in read-through. Yeah. I'm, oh, man, come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of affection for him. I, you know, when I was there at the time, I was a young man. I didn't really know what he was doing in, in the trenches. When I hosted it and hung out with him all week, I went, man, he is working hard. I mean, he really slaves over that show emotionally. It's like a big, big, big thing. So, But he's paced himself. He's still there. God, God bless him. Just had his, I think, 74th. Yeah. Wow. No, his mind is very sharp. I last time I was there, um, usually I'd leave the party after the show, Saturday Night Live, like at three thirty, you know, or or four. But that night I decided, I don't know, life's short. I'm going to stay to the end. And Lauren talked brilliantly, uh, extemporaneously for five hours, and I was talking too. But until the lights came up, and it was kind of nice. I said, I'll stay to the end and see what that's like. And it was like six a.m. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was we had the weirdest schedule there. I'd stay till about three or three thirty. Yeah. Or four. After putting in an eighteen hour day at that point, you know. Right, but you crazy. you're you know, you have your juices flowing. I mean you yeah. can't go right no. to bed after doing a live show to, you know, however many million people and Oh uh, yeah. And you're you're discussing the show with your your cohorts, with your yeah. with the other writers and performers. Yeah. And it's fun. It's just fun. And then you stay until three, three thirty, four. You go home, mm-hmm. and you wake up. I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon, if you're lucky. Yeah, and yeah. then you go to bed again at like three. SNL basically began at five p.m. on Monday. Yes, with the host meeting, mm-hmm. with everyone pitching fake ideas. Yeah. And so that's, that's like, let's, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> the Game of Thrones. Don't let, don't let them hear my idea before I read it for them and read through, right? To get the laughs, to get it on the show. Oh, no. It was just you didn't have an idea. Oh, you didn't have an idea. <laughs> Except Jack Handy had already finished his idea because <laughs> he takes a bath. And then Jack was the only guy who never procrastinated. But most comedy writers... You know, just keep thinking, thinking, ordering food, thinking, thinking, thinking. I mean, I would leave sometimes on a Tuesday at 3, and nothing really had been written in, in a major way, you know. But 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 they but by 2 o'clock the next day, they were all there. So I, I, uh, I, I wanted to—oh, I know I wanted to play uh, because mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about how this came about. When he's talking about, uh, about war, this, this is Bush again. Oh, okay. None of us want war in that whole area out over there. (laughs) But as commander-in-chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. (laughs) Probably won't, but then again, I might. (laughs) (laughs) There's the hands. 
Now, if we do, if we do go to war, I can assure you it will not be another Vietnam because we have learned well the simple lesson of Vietnam. Stay out of Vietnam. <laughs> Okay, that line was uh, written by Bob Odenkirk. Yes, I, the way I recall it, you and I were sitting around, and I think you started with talking about Vietnam or something like that. I think like I that. said, we've learned the lesson of Vietnam, but then I didn't have a joke. And then Bob approached, right? Or He wasn't there the whole time. He just came over and yeah. it seemed like, yeah. And then he goes, stay out of Vietnam. And, <laughs> and then you laughed and wrote it down. It's fantastic. That's how things work <laughs> when things are working. When things are working. Yeah, there I was in full bloom as far as having the impression and the audience discovering the impression. And when you're waving your arms around like they're Sidewinder missiles and there's no beginning, middle, or end, you just kind of go off the audience. It's a, you know, it's a fun place to be. And then, and then there's an example of a performance, and then the writing was so clever right after it. So it was like it was operating on all cylinders. Yeah, and also there was something about the rhythm of the voice and the flatness of the voice to say yeah. we've learned the lesson of Can you do it? We've learned the lesson of Vietnam. Stay out of Vietnam. <laughs> it won't attack, but it could. You know, it became a character as well as an impression. This jumpy, kind of hyperactive, kind of whispery, kind of, you know, that all that energy was just sort of coming from him doing barely doing that and then extrapolating it. But it was enough that the audience bought it and loved it. So I don't know. It wasn't wasn't Ross Perot. <laughs> but now Ross Perot, I brought you in <laughs> A billionaire a billionaire with all the answers, running for president. I had a, a th yes. remember three quarter videotape? Yes. And I remember I remember you playing that for me. Yes. And I said, Dana there is this guy, Ross Perot, and he hadn't really, he wasn't that far along yet. Yeah. And I put it in and played, I don't know, three minutes of him or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. A fully formed comic character. <laughs> yes. Which I, I thought was sort of a bookend to Sarah Palin with Tina Fey. Some people you do impressions of. You don't have to make great leaps. It's it, it's kind of all there. It's a funny persona. And Perot, absolutely. Immediately you had him, right? I had him, but then the confidence comes and the audience recognizes him more. The first sketch you had written, and I had him. It was good, but it then it went a little further. I, I didn't quite have the Larry King banter. Can I finish one time? Can I finish one time? Larry, <laughs> why do you insist on interrupting me? Can I finish one time, Larry? Just or are you going to interrupt me all day long? So that once that came about, that was uh, instantly as fun as Bush. You know, it was just, and then it really took off. You know, about two years ago, I was at the Palm Restaurant in Beverly Hills. I rarely ever go there, but all of a sudden, I'm in a booth. Larry King sidles up next to me. I want you to call my wife and tell her, uh, tell her you're Ross Perot. So he gives me the phone. And I was just in the restaurant next to Larry King, another big laugher, laughing his ass off. And I'm going, I, I got to be honest, Larry is completely shit-faced right now. Now, he is drunk off his ass. Someone's got to come get him. He's not in good shape. Can, can, I, can I finish one time? You know, so, and Larry just loved it, so. Now, you won the Emmy that, for that year, right? Uh, let me check. I guess, uh, yes. <laughs> no, it's very, uh, incredibly flattering because the category, we were, we were always up against acrobats and other, I, I don't know, it was this, you know, kind of bizarre category, so it was very uh, flattering to win. But I had a lot of momentum that year with Wayne's World and Perot and Bush. You know, it was a lot of stuff happened at once. Yeah, know? no, it was... Uh... You, you, I think you were shooing that year uh, because you carried the season. I mean, Perot and Bush really carried that season. And, of course, Wayne's World w w was so popular. Well, Dana, thanks. I think we uh, uh, have achieved what we wanted. I've blown the smoke. <laughs> smoke been blown. Let me sum it up, Al. Disclaim this undisclosed location in L.A., patching in, podcast talking, Bush, Perot, 
Massive head wound, Harry. <laughs> uh, perfect. That see, that's your that's your ear. That's mm. your ear. Ending on massive head wound, Harry. <laughs> Harry. It was that was a good word. That's a good phrase for him. And to go down on Harry is funny because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, like, who would do that? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's been fun, Al. Let's do it again. Well, uh, uh, there you have it. You can see what a jerk Dana is and how hard he was to work with. By the way, that uh, beautiful music is from Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.